Hi and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement, people with a planetary purpose. My name is Julian Guderlei, and today I'm hosting an episode with Rodrigo Cunha, um, another interview of the Rehuman series, and we're here with Jeremy Lin today. Jeremy is an author whose writings investigate the patterns of thought that have led our civilization to its current crisis of sustainability. He's founder of the nonprofit Lyology Institute, dedicated to fostering an integrated worldview, both scientifically rigorous and intrinsically meaningful, that could enable human, humanity to thrive sustainably on Earth. And so I think this sets us up for an amazing conversation. Jeremy also published a new book. We'll get to talk about it. It's called The Patterning Instinct. So with these words, welcome to the show, Jeremy. Uh, thank you so much, Julian. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, it's great to be here also with Rodrigo. You'd... Oh, thank you, Julian, for having uh, me again on this beautiful series uh, portraying Abs some absolutely. very nice and amazing rehumans. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited. Um, Jeremy, why don't we just start right at the, at the, at the top with your book? Because it's called The Pattern and Instinct, and it explores the way humans have made meaning from the cosmos and hunter-gatherer times all the way to present day. And so right. I'm, I'm curious, I feel like you could probably share wisdom with us the entire episode just based on that book. Mm. <clears throat> yeah, for well, sure. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Julian. And, um, you know, I, I think what the book is really about is <clears throat> most of us, I think, when we live our lives, we're not <clears throat> kind of very conscious of the fact that we're making <clears throat> meaning out of things in any particular way. We just, <clears throat> we, we sort of take what uh, we're sort of told about what's meaningful and we kind of live our lives according to it. And what this book really does is it shows how the way in which we make meaning out of the whole cosmos and out of our lives is something that is very much culturally sort of conditioned and different cultures throughout history have made sense of the cosmos in very different ways. And what's so amazing about that and what people don't realize so much is that that has actually shaped history. It's actually affected how different cultures and civilizations act on the world. It's actually shaped the direction of history and just as important or even more important, certainly uh, for our topics today, is it, what it shows is the ways in which we make meaning out of the world right now. That's actually sets up our values and our values are what are going to shape the future. So it's not just about the past, but this, this kind of insight is really about how we're going to shape our future. Yeah, that's, that's a very powerful stance because we, we're at these times where, you know, things, things are clearly changing um, in a, a global technological way, in a sustainability and, and, and re renewable way, because we, we realize we, we need to make the steps. So my first question, Jeremy, for you is like, what, what does the world really require at this point? Like, what, what do you think is really necessary in, in 2020 going into this next decade? Mm. Yeah, <clears throat> I think that the most important thing that the world needs right now is at this deepest place, this re-evaluation of what is meaningful. Because I think that our global civilization, the one that sort of sets the parameters for what people just take as given, they don't even think about it, is basically based on a worldview of separation. It sort of tells us that everything's separate from everything else. It tells us that as humans, we're individuals separate from other people and separate from other humans. It tells us that actually that's a good thing because capitalism is about people being like these selfish, rational maximizers who by acting selfishly actually make everything work better. It tells us that humans are totally separate from nature. And it even says that we're separate from ourselves. Like um, oftentimes it'll, our sense of identity is I, I, I sort of our mind or whatever, and our body is something that we're even separate from. And this worldview of separation is what has led to so many of the deepest problems that we're facing right now. And what I think the, the hope that we have as a global culture, global civilization, is focusing on our connectedness in place of that, and our connectedness with each other, connectedness within ourselves, our connectedness, crucially, with all of the natural world. That is the fundamental shift that we need if we're going to actually change the direction of our civilization, which right now, I, I believe, is heading headlong to collapse 
if something doesn't change very significantly fairly soon? Jeremy, uh, the first time uh, I got to meet you was uh, through a Zoom call, and now uh, we were asking you to be part of our first gathering in New York. Mm -hmm. And then you're kind of uh, doing kind of a due diligence on us, asking some beautiful questions about the purpose of the meeting, our intentions and everything. And then you, you asked us, uh, what was our view on the ecological civilization? Mm -hmm. And that way, you know, I was the first time I, I, I heard this question and I tried to elaborate on my mind. It was clear to me, but I never saw, uh, I spoke in two words. And can you speak a little bit about that? Because I think this is something that we are kind of far away from and that we need to go back to it. Yeah. Looking further into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for <clears throat> raising that question, Rodrigo. And this, this concept of an ecological civilization is probably a new phrase for many people uh, like listening into this, this podcast. And I got really excited about this, this whole concept where I just came across it not much more than a year or two ago. Um, and what basically an ecological civilization means, it's just this idea, it's a really big idea, it's this idea of actually having a civilization which is based on a different foundation than our current civilization. So our current civilization, basically it, it's based on wealth. It's based on kind of extracting resources from nature and extracting resources from human activity and, and building wealth. And wealth is the ultimate value. Wealth is what gives power. Wealth is what people seek. And then everyone's kind of caught up in this process where they have no choice but to like be part of that system unless they're very lucky or uh, actually end up being just thrown out of it by virtue of not having succeeded in that particular um, process. So the notion of an ecological civilization <clears throat> is to give this sense of what it would look like, what it would feel like, and what the world would actually be like if, if, if the civilization was based on life instead, a life-affirming rather than a wealth-affirming civilization. So that takes a while to get your head around. And um, <clears throat> the, the word ecology really captures that because and if you look at what ecology and, and ecology is, it's like this complex um, self-perpetuating system that nature has evolved uh, over the hundreds of millions and even billions of years that life has been on this earth to develop ways in which a whole set of organisms and ecosystems can work together in one um, amazingly powerful, stable, and resilient way. So if you look at ecosystems like say, <clears throat> like that, the Amazon or um, places like that without the human intervention that is now destroying them, they can stay stable and resilient and healthy for literally millions and millions of years by actually responding to the environment and by having certain principles such as each or like the waste products of one entity is the nutrition and food for another entity. That's like one key principle. Or another principle is that every single entity within that ecosystem has a place within it, has like a place of honor and dignity within that system, whether they're like just bacteria or fungi in the soil, or whether they're elephants or trees, or any, anything from the biggest to the smallest part has an important part to play in the overall health of the system. Now, if we could take those kinds of principles and apply them to our human civilization, what would that look like? And it would look very different than the kind of civilization we have right now. And I think it's a really powerful vision for us to move towards. And it's really what, when we look at the so many millions of life-affirming movements around the world, people who are working against the destruction that our current civilization is causing, you can sort of almost see this as an umbrella. Like this is what everyone is really moving towards who actually cares about life, who's actually working for life, is towards that notion of what is an ecological civilization could be. That's such a powerful distinction, Jeremy. Thank you so much for bringing this term like ecological civilization into this conversation, you two, because I think words and what we associate with them and then the inherent meaning and the way we can communicate the concepts we actually desire or that are most natural are, are quite important. As you said, like the meaning makers are in that sense, um, you know, the, the human perspective. I think 
the, the biggest piece that I, I see, see lacking is, is still this like ancient kind of Newtonian worldview where the world, the environment is a machine and we, we get to extract from it, right? And so yes. in, in reality, though, I think what people who are listening to this podcast are familiar with is, is this idea of people, planet, profit. So, or even people, planet, profit, purpose. If we um, don't regard the planet and people as part of our environment, as part of what we uh, want to affirm, connect with, and, and yeah, almost appreciate through uh, the way wealth flows and the way wealth is connected. I think I'm, I'm totally with you. We will lose it otherwise. Right. And, and so maybe very like pre as pragmatic as we can get, how, how do you see, you know, you, you're a complex thinker and you're able to see those different meanings kind of come together. So how do you see this coming together that our society that currently went very far into, you know, the logical brain identifying with the, the mind, the brain separating everything from everything that we, we find our way steadily back to integrate people planet into the profit kind of matrix. Yeah, right. Well, in a way, um, I think one way really to think about it is not even integrating people and planet into the profit matrix, but to kind of go the other way around and to um, integrate the, the profit into the overall matrix of life on earth. So it's kind of, it's, and that's in a way gets the crux of, of what we see that is the um, dominant thinking in so many different fields, like in economics is the perfect sort of example there, where there's this, um, the, the actual economic principles that businesses work on, the government set policy on, is utterly fundamentally flawed. And people know that, but they don't actually um, change their behavior or principles accordingly. So basic classical economics is based on these ideas. One, that humans are selfish, rational, maximizes, which has been shown to be complete nonsense, and yet people build policy on these ideas. Actually, we're community-oriented, we care about other people, we are inbuilt in us as humans is a sense of compassion, the sense of connection, but we're told that's not even true. So that's one way that's wrong. Another fundamental flaw is that it's based on this ancient sort of 18th century idea which might have been a reasonable assumption in the 18th century that nature's resources are infinite. And back then, it kind of felt true. You know, you, you chop down all the trees in one forest, you just move on to the next forest. No big deal. Um, of course, we know now here in the 21st century how we, we're hitting our actual limits, our actual barriers to um, sustainability, as different scientists have, have pointed out only too clearly. And yet, we live in an economics uh, system that is based on this absurd notion of the sort of infinite resources of the planet. So uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book by this great English economist, um, <coughs> called, uh, Kate Rayworth is her name. The book is called Donut Economics, which has this notion of like looking at th this kind of sense of a donut where the outer parameters are the real limits of the earth that we have and the inner parameters of the basic necessities and essentials that human beings need to have for a dignified life and living within that donut is really what it's about. So that's one example uh, of what the kind of shift in thinking that is needed. And, and, to, and to just kind of follow on from something else you were just talking about, this notion of people, planet and profits, it's really powerful. It's a great notion because we're not saying that profits are a bad thing if they're within the certain parameters of what we're talking about. But the way in which this idea has been um, sort of put out in the world so far has been this concept of a voluntary idea, like, oh, we need to try to persuade these good thinking CEOs to sort of get with the program and realize that and shift their, co their corporations so it will do those things. And, and, and the, the, the problem there, of course, is that when you're living in a world, when you're in a playing field where all of the other uh, people you're competing against don't have those parameters. You basically are um, then competing with your sort of hands tied behind your back if you're actually trying to maximize for other incentives. And in, there's a lot of case law that says it's even um, that corporations can even be sued if they actually uh, try to work according to an ethical standard and say, we don't want to 
decide to invest in this mine because it's massively polluting or we don't want to go to you know get our factories in this in this country at slave wages because it's it's bad for the people it's immoral they can actually get sued by their shareholders for not putting their profits above all other realities so the only way to really get at that is to and and this would probably be one of the most significant shifts in the world right now and in one degree, in one way of thinking about it it's just such a tiny little shift in the overall parameters of our global system and yet it would be so massive if it were to happen would to be to make the the triple bottom line a requirement um, for yeah, transnational yeah. corporations or any corporation above a certain size um, if they want to continue to receive a charter to continue to do business um, such a simple law but massive change i mean i say simple but of course getting it done is a whole other reality but if that one change were to happen we would see these massive effects rippling through our total, our whole economy. Because then suddenly um, CEOs and boards of companies would worry about being, not just being sued, but losing their ability to even continue as a business if they didn't care about the planet, if they didn't care about ecological impact, if they didn't care about the way in which they are actually treating the people, their employees, or the people in their community where they have plans, whatever it would be. What a change that would be. And so I'm, I'm excited about that as, a, as an example of a vision of what is very doable. I mean, there's no technical reason why that couldn't be in place by next year, other than the demand of people has to uh, start to influence the politicians to actually make these things, actually bring them into the domain of conversation, which nobody even talks about right now. Jeremy, uh, thank you so much for that. And uh, I was just thinking while you were uh, talking about this, that uh, you wrote in your book that culture shapes values and values shapes history. Mm -hmm. and I was just thinking that uh, we have created this economical system where we are trapped in. And why is that? Why are we so trapped on, on wealth affirming values instead of life affirming values? You know, <clears throat> That's a, a great question, and I think that we can really see the underlying direction uh, of where this sort of system really came up, kind of starting, uh, well, at least the most recent step of it, uh, really, in, in the Europe of the period of the scientific revolution, which was this really uh, sort of great moment in history in many ways, where a lot of old um, and destructive ways of thinking were being thrown off. And there was a sense of excitement, new generations of thinkers looking at the world in a different way, whether they were Newton or Galileo or um, Kepler or all these people. Um, but at the same time, uh, the, the ideas that arose were very much based on this sense of separation. And they were very much based on the sense of conquest. So if we look at the... Um, one of the themes in my book is that each of the different cultural <coughs> um, values complexes that we have are based ultimately on underlying metaphors of how we make sense of nature and the human relationship with nature. So by way of example, um, our nomadic hunter-gatherer ancestors, and of course we spent most of our um, history as humans, as nomadic hunter-gatherers, their view of nature was as a giving parent. And so all of their ways of making values was based on that. They saw themselves as part of a family of life with all other beings around them. They saw all other beings as having spirits and really being cousins and relatives. And so even if they were to kill uh, an animal for food, they honored its spirit. And they, they took that as a very serious um, set of relationships rather than just a resource to sort of destroy and sort of eat um, without honoring it in that kind of way. So that was one way of thinking about the world. When the scientific revolution took off in the 17th century in England and, and Europe, um, there was this new way of thinking about the world, which was to conquer nature. So you had people like Francis Bacon, who was this prophet of the scientific age, talking about how um, we need to sort of put nature on the rack and sort of torture our secrets out of her. And we need to dominate like what nature can do. And this was kind of an exciting idea that and a lot of of um, 
difficulties and suffering could be overcome if you could understand how nature works. But along with that, um, with that co concept came this also ideas of humans conquering other humans <clears throat> and of individuals um, conquering other people within their community. So there was a sense that basically might makes right <clears throat> became a very powerful um, source of thinking about these things in general. And that's what led to the Europeans basically going around and conquering the rest of the world over hundreds of years. And it's no coincidence that the um, laws of the corporate laws, the, the um, setting up of this global capitalist system also found its roots in that same sort of 17th and 18th century um, nexus in Europe. It was a sense that um, if you really want to conquer nature, you need to actually take away people's risk, allow them to really invest their time and resources in doing that in the most powerful way. So the whole corporate uh, structure was set up to allow people to basically go out there to the East Indies, to India, like ransack uh, the, the populations there. And if something went wrong, not deal with the downside at their, at their own end. So it kind of encouraged this kind of risk-taking which is, can be a positive thing in some ways, but not when there's no downside for actually harming the rest of the world around you. So those are the, some of the fundamentals, the sense of conquering nature, the sense of nature as a machine, as a resource to exploit, and other humans to, uh, as resources to exploit too, is what underlie, underlies much of what we just take for granted as our values today. Very, very beautifully and eloquently expressed. I think when I look at, at some of those statements, I really enjoy that sentiment that, you know, um, let, let's just observe that those were the meanings that were made first, the first step, and then realize maybe even at the time, even though some of them might, might still seem unsensical, but some of them might have even made sense, right? Like mm -hmm. our pursuit yeah. in the human history had to, in one way or other, apparently come to this moment right now. And then in this moment right now, when we look at some of those meanings we made, some of them just don't make sense anymore. So really, I think what is, what is challenged is also the, the ability for us to learn, to acknowledge, and to integrate and adapt based on past um, actions, mistakes, or, or even just consequences, right? So, so my question would be, um, what do you think does it take for humanity to learn from its past mistakes? <clears throat> that's a that's a great question you know <clears throat> i think that one of the most important things we can do when we realize mistakes that we've made is really be curious and ask ourselves why ultimately did i <clears throat> make that mistake what was i thinking um at the deepest levels that led me to that place there's this great quote that's <clears throat> attributed to Einstein, although I'm not sure if he ever actually said it, but everyone likes to say that he said it, but <clears throat> um, it's, it's essentially that um, you're never going to solve your current problem using the same ways of thinking that got you into that problem in the first place or whatever. Right. Um, he better said that. I quoted yeah, him on that before. <laughs> he did, uh, well, if not, he, he, he should have, you know, <clears throat> but um, the, the, the point about that, I think it's really, really <clears throat> and profound, actually, because like once we recognize that a lot of our problems that we're in um, arise from seeing nature <clears throat> as a machine and seeing nature just as a resource to exploit, it gets to be self-evident how some of the ways in which we respond to our current problems are so obviously flawed. So when people look, for example, at climate breakdown, which is obviously one of the most pressing problems we have, you know, a lot of people go, great, we need to invest in renewables because that's, this, that's the solution. Um, and, uh, and that obviously is an important step. But again, it's looking for a technical solution to a much deeper systemic problem. It's just saying, okay, um, we've used one resource, give, get, got some problems from that, so let's change to using another resource and uh, think in a different way. Um, or even more extreme are the people, and we're gonna unfortunately hear about this more and more in coming years as things get more out of control, this notion of geoengineering. This actual, um, it, it seems just a few years ago, it seemed like kind of just this, utter 
crazed idea that only the most wacky people would be talking about. Now this being discussed at UN conferences and it's going to become more people like Bill Gates are investing in these ideas. It's terrifying. But the idea is that we got to think of the whole of Earth as a machine to engineer. So if we have a climate breakdown, well, that's a technical problem. And um, so we can solve it technically. So um, if we have too much sun coming in, uh, let's just put out trillions and trillions of little particles that will reflect the sun's rays. Um, and people are actually experimenting with these, these kinds of ideas. Um, so, and I mean, some of the downsides, I mean, one is just the notion of anything uh, that is done at such a massive scale always has these unintended consequences. And the things like um, climate might be impacted in ways that nobody could expect, leading to uh, loss of a monsoon, or in some cases, the sky wouldn't even no longer be blue anymore. It would just be kind of this kind of gray, uh, slightly off-white sky. Uh, and, and it doesn't even solve the problem of the extra carbon in the, um, in the oceans, causing the loss of corals and basically, and massive damage to, see, to marine life. So all these problems, and yet people are viewing these as solutions that we need to start looking at because they're not willing to look at the underlying problem of this growth-based economy that is destroying everything in its path. So I think the key thing we need to do when we look at our problems that we've caused is to actually ask ourselves, what is the underlying reason we, we did this? And what can we, how can we think about things in a fundamentally different way? And that's where uh, I, I do feel that this book, The Patterning Instinct, tries to explore that because it tries to show how you need to look at these root metaphors and that we can actually choose different root metaphors. So if we choose the metaphor of humans being part of a living earth and us being part of this kind of web of life and there's really even like a web of meaning that all of our meaning is arising from our connectedness with everything else around us. We can begin to look at the same old problems in fundamentally different ways and look at how do we have to change things at a more systemic level rather than just at technical levels. That's a great point for my next question, Jeremy. Uh, recently, you have engaged in this public debate with Jim Bedell and he has this uh, work on deep adaptation. And you were mentioning something about the transformation we have to do. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because we, when we say that uh, the world is going to be so challenging ahead and then we, we need to adapt, yeah. what is the difference between adapt and transform? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. And um, <clears throat> so, yeah, so um, for, for anybody uh, who it doesn't know Jem Bendel's name. He's um, somebody who is a sustainability expert who wrote a paper that had a massive impact just a year or two ago, um, which is essentially uh, stating that when you look at where things are going, uh, collapse is inevitable. Um, and that he was kind of calling out a lot of other scientists and environmental thinkers who didn't want to like who might be looking at the similar kind of things but didn't want to say it so blatantly and by really calling it in that way he got a lot of people to really wake up and um, get very interested in some other ideas he had and so he started this um, this kind of forum called deep adaptation which now has gone worldwide and a lot of people are really engaged in it, which basically says, look, we need to accept the collapse is inevitable and let's start from that basis. Um, and let's like, once we, get, once we go there, let's start dealing with some of the spiritual and emotional um, implications of that. And let's start working to adapt to that reality, which is why he calls it deep adaptation. And I have a lot of respect for Jen and what he's trying to do. So even though I wrote a couple of articles critiquing what he said, and we, and we did have a public online debate, I also want to make clear that um, I, don't, I, I see what he's, what he's bringing to the overall conversation, really important stuff. But where I have and have had a disagreement with him is I totally agree that at the current rate, the current direction we are moving in, if we continue to go at that place, I do believe collapse is inevitable. Um, and I also believe that some of the more 
uh, optimistic technological, uh, what sometimes called techno-optimistic sort of approaches are not correct, they're invalid. They just um, move some of the superficial things. They don't change the overall direction we're going in. So there's a lot we agree on, but what I bring to this conversation is this notion of recognizing that human society um, and, uh, the, and just the whole system itself of life on earth is a complex nonlinear system, which means that as such, it's very, it's not just very difficult to predict, it's impossible to predict. And we don't know actually exactly what's going to happen. And to prematurely call a collapse inevitable, I feel has the risk of allowing people to sort of just get off the existential boat, if you will, say, well, it's going to happen anyway. So I'll just focus on my community or I'll focus on my friends, focus on what I can do. It sort of takes people away from that notion of engagement. And part of um, the recognition, once we see this sort of web of connectivity of what life is really about and what our existence in life is about, we also need to recognize that we as humans, every one of us is actually part of this web. What's going on in the world is not something that we're separate from. We're not like sort of 30,000 miles out in space looking at this earth system going, oh, this is gonna happen, that's gonna happen. The actual choices each of us makes every day is part of the future that is unfolding. We are the future basically, in every one of our decisions we make, every one of the conversations we have. And by putting that together with this recognition that things can't really be predicted in certainty, puts this amazing, it sort of shifts things around. It puts a responsibility and also a sense of hope, but not hope based on some sense of optimism, but hope based on a sense of just the possibility inherent in life itself, that by being engaged, by trying to make a difference in a positive way, uh, that, that's something that can give actually meaning to our lives, but is also something that becomes an, an existential drive, like a responsibility once we recognize that things are not absolutely inevitable. So that's in a, in a nutshell, like my approach and where I sort of had some differences with some of the sort of fundamentals of Jen Bendel's approach. Thank you. That's, that's fascinating. Yeah. Can I ask you on that, on that note, like, so, so how do you, um, you know, kind of connect to optimism on a daily basis that this is possible that we, even though it, it seems very imminent, um, that more catastrophes are happening, that, that we have a chance that we're actually mm -hmm. going in the right direction, that, that we're actually regenerating as yeah. a human society. Yeah, and I hear you. There's this really interesting dynamic of these different sort of concepts that float around um, that I thought about a lot in the last year or two, partly as a result of these conversations with Jen Bendel and uh, just in general. So this notion of optimism and pessimism and hope. Um, and a lot of time people actually conflate hope with optimism. They say, you know, like, oh, hope is something, is like this feeling that, oh, if, um, if things just go right, everything will turn out okay, and so that's what hope is about. Um, but there's a, the way that I look at things actually was influenced by some degree to, by um, Rebecca Solnit, who wrote this really um, great small book called Hope in the Dark. Um, and, what she pointed out was that in a way you can see both optimism and pessimism as cop-outs. Like somebody who is fundamentally optimistic goes, well, you know, I know things are looking bad, but it'll all end up um, okay in the end. And so the, an implication of that is, so I don't really need to do much about it because I think things will be okay. And pessimism is the other extreme. Like anything I do is going to end up screwing up. So um, it, the, the whole world's going to hell in a handbasket nothing for me to do. And where hope can play a role that's different from both of those is recognizing how desperate things are, but recognizing that our engagement itself is actually what hope is about. It's this recognition that I am part of life. Um, there's one uh, environmental I, uh, I think it might have been Gus Smith, I can't remember, but um, who basically coined this great phrase. He said, hope is a verb with its sleeves rolled up. So it's like the sense that, you know, hope is not about like, oh, I think things will turn out okay. Or um, it's, it's about saying like, you know, we don't know. 
and I'm alive, and I have agency. And a lot of the people um, who might be sort of tuned in to our conversation right now, and I think it's true for the three of us, we are fortunate enough to be in a privileged place on this earth where we're not desperately trying to figure out how to survive to the next day, but we have some freedoms uh, to actually say, where am I gonna put my energy? What am I going to do? And to me, hope is that recognition that what every one of us does has an impact into the future that we create. The future itself is really a verb. It's like all the stuff that all of us do together is, is futuring. That's what we're doing. And to me, that's what hope is about. It's this recognition, not of like, what are the probabilities? Is it 60% or 2% or whatever that we can avoid collapse? But it's about none of us know. And what I do know is that whatever I do today, and that's true for all of us, is going to make some difference. And sometimes, because of this nonlinear world we live in, it's like uh, sometimes known as the butterfly effect, which was this <clears throat> phrase coined by uh, a meteorologist, actually, called Edward Lorenz back in the 1960s. He was the, one of the first people to discover the sort of nonlinear nature of climate. And he asked this question, is it possible that the flaps of a butterfly's wings in Brazil could somehow cause a tornado in Texas. Um, and this was actually this hugely impactful way of looking at the world, that sometimes a very small impact can magnify hugely just by virtue of this nonlinear way in which the world works to have this massive effect. So when somebody like a Greta Thunberg a couple of years ago, <clears throat> just one little one kid um, who just gets up, um, concerned about what's going on and she goes and like does a sit-in in front of a parliament in Sweden all by herself saying, we got to do something about this. There was no way she or anybody could have known that she'd be the butterfly that had this effect that within a year or two later, millions of school kids are out on strike saying, we demand a difference. And that's true for any of us. Not that and we're all going to be Greta Thunbergs, but we won't even know sometimes the impact a conversation we, we have will have in some future uh, like second, third, fourth degree of connection out there. We'll never know um, if some simple act of, you know, um, reducing your beef consumption might have on other people around who, oh, I can do that too. Um, and then all these things together can have this massive impact through like this emergent process of connectivity. So that to me is what hope is about, just that recognition. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing your hope and your perspective on that. Because I think everything we talked about today is ultimately a, a connection to consciousness and a fundamental kind of evolution or shift in consciousness from which we then can look at meaning differently, look at our past mistakes differently and look at, um, yeah, yeah, as you said, the concepts like the butterfly effect and really realize that when we regard life as a living experience, it's really hard to pretend to predict tomorrow. But if we regard life as a machine, then it's better not to take any actions because it's, it, we already know what we need to do. And, and so, you know, we're not living in the machine. We're actually living in, 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 a, in a conscious and alive universe in a, in a planet that's floating in the cosmos. And, and we, we don't know if sitting in the parliament in Sweden uh, will make you a Greta Thunberg or if this conversation will, will impact uh, you listening right now in a way that you say, you know what, let me get up and, and, and do this. And so um, I, I love, Jeremy, I love the, the eloquence with which you describe this because these are processes and notions that I've come to observe. They're happening in almost everybody at this time. Really, it, it's more about where can we trust or connect our hope or, or, or come back to action. And so I have two more questions for you and maybe Rodrigo has a question too. Um, my, my first question is about trust itself. And I want to I wanna understand in your own words, Jeremy, what is required for you to experience trust? Mm. Yeah, thank you for asking, I, I feel like a really deep question. <clears throat> and um, for me, trust is something that arises through how I process the complex interactions I'm having with somebody or something, whatever it is, through myself. So um, to me, trust arises from my own internal processing 
of what I hear, what I, um, what, what I perceive from others around. And that can be uh, even to do with trusting myself. There's this um, concept in traditional Chinese thought um, that has to do with this notion of integrity or, or authenticity. And, and it's, it's a Chinese word uh, this, um, calls, called chung. Um, and it's spelled C-H-E-N-G, but it's pronounced like chung. Um, yeah, it, using English letters. And it's this notion of really feeling into the full authentic way in which everything relates to each other. So like as an organism, any organism from something as simple as a cell to as massive as a, as a redwood tree or a human being or whatever, every organism works through the top, the whole thing as a whole, affecting all the different parts and the different parts affecting the whole. And when that is happening in true authenticity, everything feels right and healthy. There was this um, wonderful Chinese sage called Mencius um, who said there is um, nothing more wonderful than for a person to examine himself right all the way through and experience chung, experience that sense of authenticity. And to me, this is what trust is about, is this feeling, that sense of authenticity in whatever other person or process or whatever it is that you're relating to, which again can be to do with yourself, feeling it in yourself and trusting yourself. And so, you know, when you, when you out in the, in a forest and you look at a tree and you might even touch it and put your hands on it, you can trust that tree. You can trust it for what it is, what it, it's, you can feel its treeness. There's no question that tree has chung like that. Um, and you can feel that in a person, but to the, to the degree that you have chung within yourself, you can then trust that's chung in terms of how you relate to others. So if you're not trusting yourself, then you can be in relation to other people and you never know what you can actually trust or not because you're not even sure where you stand in relation to it. But if you come from a place of chung within yourself, you don't need more than your own true intuitive sense to know if you're really trusting a process, a person, um, like a belief system, whatever it is that you're relating to. So I really think it comes from that development within yourself of that, of processing all the different parts as part of the complete whole of who you are. Yeah, that's fascinating. I love that concept of Chang. I've never heard yeah. about that before. Yeah. So we have time left, Julian, for one question to Jeremy. Yeah, let's, let's do another question from you and then I'll, I'll have another question about his uh, dream for the earth. Okay, so uh, Jeremy, uh, you were talking about the techno split, and and that's how maybe you, that's the direction where we're going. But you were also talking about this uh, web of meaning, and maybe this is something that you are working on, right? Uh, and this is the last chapter of your book as well, and that gave me a lot of hope. And as as we were talking uh, before. So can you talk a little bit more about this uh, web of meaning and how can we kind of grab this and then use it as a lifeboat opportunity yes. to thrive in this beautiful planet before we destroy it? Yeah, yeah, thank you, Rodrigo. And um, yeah, and so this idea of a, of a techno split is something I talk about in the last chapter of my book, The Patterning Instinct, which is looking, if you continue to see this separations going on in the world right now. And if somehow the world actually avoids a total collapse of civilization, um, the scenario that in some ways is even worse from a moral standpoint um, is this place where humans themselves split up into the privileged elite who get uh, genetically enhanced and technologically connected and live this, uh, this life of moving into who knows what kind of dimension. And most other humans get left with the overall misery and, and destruction of global climate collapse. And that's the, actually the direction I think our civilization is on unless we do something about it. And I think we need to be aware of the moral implications of that hugely. But the other possibility, like you say, is if we can actually shift our world to, towards 
that concept we talked about at the beginning of our conversation towards this notion of a life-affirming civilization? What would that look like? And that's what I call um, the web of meaning as a potentially different underlying metaphor for making sense of uh, basically our lives in the overall entire cosmos and in, on the earth and with other human beings and with all of life. And in fact, the, the uh, Web of Meaning is the title of a book I'm currently working on right now that will be published next spring. Um, and the, the subtitle to the book is um, Integrating Science and Traditional Wisdom to Find Our Place in the Universe. Because really the web of meaning is all about integration, which kind of relates to that notion of Chung that I was just talking about in a way. Um, and it's this place of recognizing once we start looking at connectedness rather than separation as a source of making sense of things, we realize that actually an integration is key. Like it's this notion of recognizing the differences between things, but recognizing their unity and similarity at the same time. So one uh, sort of integration is to recognize that actually uh, what we see in modern systems science and complexity science and evolutionary biology, a lot of findings in modern science points to a true connectedness of things and actually show the same insights that a lot of the greatest uh, insights of traditional wisdom showed us from Buddhism, Taoism, uh, other um, Confucian thoughts in China, and importantly, indigenous wisdom worldwide, all had these deep insights about our interconnectedness. So in fact, this book I'm writing looks at the biggest questions we can ask as human beings, like who am I, why am I, where am I, what am I? Um, and in each of these questions, it shows that the answers can actually be woven together from uh, some of these greatest insights from the past and insights from modern science. And those answers are a fundamental rejection of this reductionist, separationist, dualistic worldview that is dominant in our world right now. So I do feel um, with a worldview that is really based on true connectedness, we have the ability to actually shift towards that ecological civilization, a, a real true harmonious way of humans relating to each other and the earth. That's that's already kind of leading up to to this this last question after you, which is like your dream for the Earth. And let me context that because this is how Green Planet Blue Planet came came to be. The context is when we look a little bit further along the horizon than just um, let's say my personal lifetime or or this mess we're in right now, right? Um, so the context would be in a seven generational way of thinking. Mm -hmm. What's the dream for the Earth that you? that you hope for, that you pray for, that you wish for, and that you're acting for. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that is such a wonderful um, exploration to um, sort of to finish our conversation on. And really my, my dream is this sense of actually over the next few generations, our civilization moving towards this notion of an ecological civilization. And what that would look like, this is not, some sort of vision that is, for example, like anti-technology or anti-civilization. And the, the, the dream is that there is a way for humans to actually have complex civilizations together, to actually embrace technology, but for technology itself to be something that is life-affirming, to be something that actually uh, enhances humans' relationship with the earth. And for our relationship with the earth, not to be one of either dominating or just trying to stay away from saying humans are bad on the earth, but to actually uh, be one of tending the earth. Um, there's this beautiful notion from Native American um, thinking, ways of relating to the earth, that when humans actually bring the right qualities to our, our, our relationship with the rest of life, it doesn't have to be destructive and it doesn't have to be controlling, but it can be one of tending where we can actually bring out the inherent beauty and um, fecundity and prosperity of nature um, and be part of it and share with it so that we can actually be symbiotic with the rest of the earth. And so human civilization can give 
to life on earth and its diversity while we receive from it. And I think that that would involve massive shifts in how we think about our lives, how we think about our relationship with the, with the world. But we don't, the wonderful thing is we don't need to give up anything to get to that place. We can actually live lives of profound quality, of fulfillment, of connectivity, and still being connected with each other through all the wonders of what our technology has given us so far, but then use that to be even more connected with the rest of the earth and for earth itself to come back into a place of flourishing. So I think that's possible. Um, and I think that's what is worth our putting our energy into. Like some, somebody once said, if you're going to see the fruits of what you're working on in your own lifetime, then you're not thinking big enough. And I love that, that idea. It's like what we can sometimes think of as cathedral thinking, like the medieval uh, cities that started to put blueprints together for a cathedral. They knew that their great, great, great grandchildren would still be working on that, that cathedral and way after they were dead, but they did it and that's what they created. And that's what we can create uh, with enough of a sense of what's possible. Maybe so. Yeah. Beautifully put. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for your time, for your insights, for the book you've written, for the work you do. And um, Rodrigo, you as well, for, for bringing all of us together, both in person and the Rehumans, um, you know, kind of collab and the space and, and now today in this podcast. Yeah. Thank you both. Thank, thank you, Julian and Rodrigo, for making this happen. Thank Great. you so much. I learned a lot from you. Thank you. Thank you. that's that another episode of green planet blue planet podcast i hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life into your relationships or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together we're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win i win and the entire planet wins We're raising consciousness together, and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up, to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you. And I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host, both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments, and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in, connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon. Mm-hmm.